Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 426. Everyone has their limits. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, over on the members' feed, Dr. Z spent about an hour and a half walking us through one of the lenses that she, as a sociologist, uses to analyze the top-down socially controlling societies like chivalry. And then she walks us through the honestly hilarious studies that have been conducted on individuals that have these kinds of ideologies. Here's a sample. Like 50 to 80 people are assigned this game. You get a big map and you're assigned us a region based on kind of population. So like India has more people than North America. Mm -hmm. And then you're told that you need to assign yourself a leader or two. Like you have elites in this group. Okay. Once that happens, the leaders are taken aside And they're given um, control over that country's or that region's bank account. And this is to help them, like, part of the game is to move around resources, respond to scenarios that are come up in the game that you have to respond to. Mm -hmm. And you also inherit a bunch of, like, inherent problems. Like, if you're in North America, you've got to manage your resources and bring in growth because you're a service economy, that kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got a bank account to sort of adjust and deal with all these things as they go through. And then there's some global scenarios that show up in the game as they go along. Well, the leads are also slowly told within the next few minutes, quietly, that they're actually all in competition with each other as well, just the other leads. And so they're allowed to surreptitiously guide some of that money from the region account into their own personal account. And whoever amongst the leads has elites have the most money wins a secret prize. <laughs> at the end of the game. And so this is the setup, and they go through about 40 years in about three hours. So he brought in a bunch of people who scored very low on that authoritarian follower scale. And they almost instantly, without any crisis present, set up a global consortium that met regularly in Tasmania. They all dropped military spending, so there's a global military drawdown. When an ozone crisis was announced, the elites immediately met and contributed enough money to advert it through technology. They, over the next 40 years, absorbed a population growth of 8.7 billion people, found most of them jobs in healthcare and food. And there was a small blip in that there was uh, a famine in Africa, and they kind of under-responded, and particularly North America just refused to, start <laughs> to give resources. For some reason, that feels on brand, right? Uh, so there, there was, there were some deaths from that famine in Africa. That was pretty much what happened. In okay. the, so we need to move the UN to Tasmania. Is that what you're I telling me? I don't think me? Tasmania was the point. Um, <laughs> so facilitators of this game. So basically, this is a scenario that happens enough times. You run enough times that the facilitators are professional game runners, and they 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 do prof- like they do specific scoring. And they said that this was the best run of the game they'd ever seen anywhere. Wow. Then he moved in the group that had... (laughs) (laughs) Now we're bringing in the B team. (laughs) Scored really high on this authoritarian follower scale. Um, And I'll tell the same thing. Everyone's given regions. They're asked to nominate their elites. And they're given the purse and their secret... The elites are given their secret goal. Mm -hmm. They immediately started creating their own global crises. (laughs) No one meets together. Like, there's no, like, global meeting to kick off the game. Because, again, the, the, the low ones, they didn't need to do that. They just did it 
instantly because it seemed like a good idea. No, fuck you, I got mine. It never occurs to the authoritarian group to do something like that. Instead, the group running the Middle East announces that they're doubling the price of oil instantly. <laughs> the Soviet Union promptly invades North America. And then immediately the entire globe dies out in a nuclear war. <laughs> that conversation goes all over the place, and it was really illuminating. And over on Reddit, people are talking a ton about it. So if you'd like to listen to that episode and all the other members' extras, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Billy, Samantha, and Andrew for signing up already. It was winter of 1071, and the last five years had seen a lot of change. The once mighty Godwinson dynasty was gone. I mean, I guess Harold's poor baby brother, Wolfnoth, was still alive, given that he was still assumed to be breathing in one of William's dungeons. But he never again saw freedom, so... Yeah. The House of Wessex, the dynasty of King Alfred the Great himself, had also collapsed. And while Edgar the Atheling was technically still alive, Malmesbury helpfully lets us know that this head of the House of Wessex and heir to the throne of England spent the rest of his days, quote, remaining at court for many years, silently sunk into contempt through his indolence, or more mildly speaking, his simplicity. For how great must his simplicity be, who would yield up to the king for a single horse and a pound of silver, which he received as his daily stipend, end quote. Ouch. And as for the rebels, well, the first rebellion of Northumbria failed when the Danes didn't show up promptly, and then William took the chance to go and murder a bunch of the rebels. The second Northumbrian rebellion failed when the Danes, who did actually show up this time, abandoned the fight and allowed William to exterminate the North in exchange for a payday. And honestly, everything had been going William's way here. Even when he faced opposition, he came out on top, and more often than not, he came out better than he had been before. And there's a variety of reasons for this. Some of it was luck, some of it was strategy, some of it was the fact that he was breaking rules so fast and furious that people really didn't know how to respond, which gave him time to break even more rules and thus gain even more advantages. And this whole time, William had been strengthening his grip on power by installing continental nobles in English estates. This kingdom was going to have a new continental structure full of new continental people, his people. But here, in 1071, things were beginning to change for William because all of William's tactics had their own weaknesses. And in 1071, they were starting to show themselves. And an excellent example of that is the situation in Chester. When William completed his extermination of the North, and then carried out the subsequent ravaging of Chester in 1070. He decided to grant the city and the county of Chester, or you know whatever remained of it, to one of his close companions who had stuck by him through all that indiscriminate slaughter. But that list was starting to get thin. By this point, 
William had lost a good chunk of his followers due to a combination of the difficulty of his campaign, his abusive style of leadership, and, of course, the brutality of his tactics, which even managed to shock many of the knights who were in his service. And there was also the fact that many of the knights' wives were back across the channel threatening to bang Sir Stephen if their husbands didn't stop playing around in England and come home sharpish. And that meant that when it was time to grant lands to his followers, William's inner circle was, by sheer social physics, populated by a certain kind of person. Basically the most ruthless, ambitious, and the most motivated by greed. And so Chester was given to a man named Gerbod the Fleming, who was now Gerbod the First Earl of Chester. And in many ways, Gerbod was exactly the kind of man for the job. He'd been with William during the harrying. He'd been with William during the massacre in Chester. So this was the kind of guy who would bring William's style of rule to the beleaguered city. But there was one small problem. See, William wasn't just installing a friendly noble who liked to kill the locals. He was also installing someone who was tied to the continent. Very closely tied. And this became an issue almost immediately when a civil war kicked up in Gerbod's home county of Flanders. You see, you might remember that Baldwin VI had died in 1070. And when that happened, you would assume that the title of Count would just go to Baldwin's son, Arnulf. But Arnulf was only 16 years old. And so the Count's brother, Robert the Frisian, decided that he should be ruling instead. And so he launched a war against his own grieving nephew. The whole thing was very chivalric, meaning it was very messy. And the thing about messy civil wars is that knights absolutely loved that shit. A good civil war was like knight catnip. Nightnip. And so the knightly class of Flanders was just pouring into this fight. This thing was blowing up like the opening night of Barbie. And before long, it had turned into such a catastrophe that it was getting on King Philip of France's last nerve. And besides, Robert was breaking the rules. Flanders belonged to Arnulf, and so the king of France raised his own army and got involved. And this matters because Gerbod, the new Earl of Chester, was still a continental noble, which meant that while he did enjoy having an English estate, he was much more interested in what was going on across the channel, which, you know doesn't make for the most reliable governance at the best of times. But now that there's a Flemish civil war kicking up, well, that problem had been dialed up to 11. And so Gerbod had a wicked case of FOMO, and he was absolutely begging William for permission to go to the party. I mean, come on, we've harried the north. We killed a bunch of people in Cumbria and Chester. I've met my quota here, Bill. Let me go play. Even the king's gonna be there. And remember... This was supposed to be the guy who was holding down a large chunk of the Welsh border, not to mention providing a hard point to help subdue Western Mercia and portions of the north. He was also responsible for keeping the Welsh and the Mercians from linking up and doing yet another rebellion together. But now he wanted to go across the f***ing channel? And then it gets worse. William's childhood friend and steward, Fitz Osborne, began to ask for permission to go to Flanders as well. 
Come on, Bill. It's going to be so fun. Please. I mean, Flanders right now is the place to be. And adding fuel to the fire, Fitz Osborne was getting pressured to join the Civil War by a rather influential continental figure. You see, Malmesbury tells us that Arnulf's mom, Countess Riquelda, was really worried that her baby boy might actually lose Flanders to his good-for-nothing Uncle Robert. So she decided to bring in a ringer. She sent a message across the channel asking for the support of one of the most ruthless, battle-hardened, and violent men in England. Yep, William Fitzosburn. And to sweeten the deal, she even proposed that they get married. Now, that was a lot of money and power that she was offering. And the thing about Fitzosburn is that, well, he really liked money and power. So come on, Bill. I want to go get some lands and titles. And meanwhile, Bill is sat there being like, we've got lands and titles at home. Check the fridge. So this means that King William now had two of his top nobles, the Earl of Chester and the Earl of Hereford, who also happened to be a steward, begging him to let them go to the chivalric version of Bonnaroo. And even though they were two earls who were responsible for holding down the Welsh border, William was running out of reasons to tell them no. And here's where this thing gets really messy. Because William was actually married to Robert's sister, Matilda. Which meant that this civil war was actually about his brother-in-law fighting with his nephew. And some historians even see evidence in the subtext of later records that suggest that Matilda herself was throwing her weight into the ring and was specifically backing her nephew over her brother. I don't know what Matilda and Robert's childhood looked like, but if that's true, I have to assume it wasn't great. But whatever the situation, eventually, William couldn't put these guys off any longer. And so he granted permission to Gerbod and Fitzosborne to go and fight in Flanders. And it looks like he also allowed them to take some soldiers with them. But not a ton which was smart since many of the fighters would have been drawn from their primary estates along the Welsh border, which wasn't exactly secure at this point. However, with permission granted, Gerbod and Fitzosburn, along with all their fighters, excitedly hopped on a ship bound for Flanders. And eventually, once across the channel, they joined up with Arnulf, King Philip, and the rest of the army and they marched upon Robert the Frisian at the Battle of Cassel in February of 1071. It was time to get this party started. Charging along with the forces of King Philip of France and Count Arnulf, the Earls threw themselves into battle against the rebel forces. This is what they were born for. This is what they had trained for. And they were in their element. They were surrounded by the sound of thundering hooves and weapons clashing and limbs flying and blood pooling and men screaming everywhere. It was just heroism and romance, just everybody having a great time. And so when Fitzosborne was cut down, well, that probably came as a bit of a shock. And then when Arnulf, the guy who was supposed to become the Count of Flanders, was killed... Well, that must have really taken a lot of the fun out of it for the fellas. And then, when King Philip and his men fled the battle, 
Well, that was downright dispiriting. This had not been what Gerbod had been hoping for. And as he was surrounded and led off towards a grim death in a Flemish dungeon, well, he probably wished he'd stayed home for this one. Bummer, bro. Now, this was obviously bad news for Fitzosborne and Gerbod. But for William, this was actually pretty catastrophic. His people had weighed in on a family conflict, his wife's family conflict. And, well, they lost decisively. I mean, their claimant was dead, for pity's sake. And he couldn't exactly hand-wave his involvement away, either. His closest advisor, his freaking steward, had been there fighting for Arnulf. So this new Count Robert of Flanders wasn't going to forget that anytime soon. Furthermore, the death of Fitzosborne meant that he lost someone he'd relied upon since he was a child. Someone he knew he could trust implicitly. And as such, someone he'd spent his whole life bestowing with a ton of lands and properties, both in England and Normandy. And now those properties were going to Fitzosborne's two sons, one of whom was a monk in Normandy and who would govern the properties over there. And then the second son, Roger, was inheriting the English estates. And Roger, well, where Fitzosborne's loyalty had been unquestioned, this Roger kid looked like he'd encouraged the Earls to rebel if given half the chance. And now, he was rich and powerful, and there wasn't much William could do about it. Roger was his bestie's kid, and he'd inherited that land lawfully. So that sucks. And as for Gerbod, well, he wasn't dead, but sitting in a dungeon in Flanders, well, he might as well be as far as William is concerned. But at least he didn't have any kids, which meant that the Earldom of Chester was available and it could be given to a person of William's choosing instead of, you know, defaulting to some shifty looking kid. So soon after the battle, William gave Chester to Hugh Lagrosse, or Hugh Lupus, and made him the second Earl of Chester. And right now, members are thinking, wait a minute, that name sounds familiar. And yeah, this was the same Hugh Lupus that we mentioned in a recent members episode. The guy who was one of William's buddies and whose family are still incredibly wealthy English landlords today and are holding some of the exact same lands. And their progenitor, Hugh, well, this guy was bad news for the English. Orderick tells us that Hugh's greed was boundless, and unsatisfied with having mere retainers, he also insisted on keeping an entire army on staff in an effort to enhance his wealth, which had to have made his neighbors and maybe even the king a bit worried. And actually, Hugh was so focused on expanding his holdings that he was continually out on raid, and he wasn't above attacking his own lands if he thought that would further enhance his wealth. And busy with all of that, he wasn't all that interested in economics or governance matters. And as such, he ignored agriculture, even though it was, you know, the engine that fueled the economy, and also even though they were in the middle of a freaking famine. 
And instead, Hugh focused his attention and his properties on hawking and hunting. Because Hugh lived by a simple philosophy. Raid hard, play hard. And actually, Orderick even tells us pretty directly that Hugh was more interested in food and sex than he was with governance. And he overindulged in both to ridiculous degrees. So we've got a greedy Norman running Chester like a blood-soaked Bacchanal. And that was bad for everyone. Even the king. You can't make money from a store by running repeated smash and grabs on it. Eventually, you're going to have to actually make something and sell it. These actions might produce short-term wealth, but what they really needed was to produce and stabilize. And Hugh didn't seem to be interested in that. And reading the accounts, you get the impression that Hugh Lupus wasn't the only Norman who was failing to take the long view on governing the kingdom. And while Hugh was quite happy to raid the Jesus out of his Welsh neighbors, the fact that he also raided the English must have made William wonder what he would need to do to keep this guy happy, lest he turn his attentions towards London. And I wonder if that's why Hugh was the recipient of so many land grants. Honestly, William's style of rule feels a lot like someone kiting checks. And then on top of everything else, this was all happening right at about the same time that East Anglia was going into full rebellion under Hereward. So you can only imagine how much William was feeling both the chaos of his own lands and also the loss of Fitzosborne at this point. Also, do you remember how William had to take a pause and travel back to France to deal with King Philip? Well, part of that had to do with this whole mess in Flanders. You see, Philip kept raiding for a while after that battle and kept fighting with Robert. But in the end, Robert prevailed, which made him someone that King Philip wanted to avoid fighting, which then meant that when they made peace, Philip started doing whatever he needed to to keep Robert close. And since Robert wasn't exactly pleased with Normandy, well, that meant that the King of France wasn't pleased either. From this point forward, King Philip would be outright dismissive to William and sometimes downright hostile. And, as you might imagine, Matilda's relationship with her brother was never repaired either, because civil wars can do that. Which means that all at once, William acquired an antagonistic king and he lost his alliance with Flanders. And thus, once again, Flanders returned to its traditional place of being a staging ground for any hostile forces that might want to cause trouble for England. So what had occurred at the Battle of Cassel was a significant blow to William, both personally and politically, and we will see the consequences of these events for years to come. And all of this chaos should have been good news for the East Anglian Rebellion. But the Danes had completely betrayed them, and then the monks of Ely had completely betrayed them, and then with the assistance of the traitors, their nigh-invulnerable stronghold ended up being overrun, and a bunch of their leaders and soldiers got mutilated or imprisoned, or both. So yeah, as England approached the winter of 1071, a lot had changed, and a lot of it looked pretty damn bad for everyone, but ultimately, it still looked worse for the English. The last few years was just a lot to handle, 
But that wasn't slowing down Earl Edwin of Mercia. He was still out there, in the wilds, accompanied by his rebel supporters. And he was diligently working on gathering allies for the English resistance at Ely. But news travels fast. Especially news that makes a struggling regime look powerful. So it wasn't long before he learned that Ely had fallen. And how William had conquered the Isle and had imprisoned and mutilated many of the fighters who were stationed there. He also would have learned that his brother, Morcar, was being held at the castle of one of the king's companions, Roger de Beaumont. This rebellion looked lost. But maybe he could still save his brother. So Edwin immediately set to work putting together a new plan to break his brother out of jail. Although some of his companions began to express concerns. I mean, Ely, their stronghold, had fallen. They had been out here for the last six months trying to gather allies, and they had little to show for it. And now most of their fighters were either mutilated to the point of being unable to fight, or were imprisoned. This wasn't exactly what you'd call a strong tactical position. And while the Gesta did mention that one of Harward's companions, Leofwina the Dodger, was an escape artist, that was one of Harward's companions, not Edwin's. And besides, the Dodger was good at breaking out of prisons. Edwin was trying to break into one. And all of that is before you get to the fact that honestly, Edwin and Morcar's history of leadership was pretty much just a litany of failures at this point. And their biggest failures all involved military strategy. But while these were all extremely good points, no one was able to change Edwin's mind. When confronted with the high likelihood that they would all die in this mission, Orderick tells us that Edwin, quote, declared that he would prefer death to life unless he could deliver Morcar from captivity or have his revenge by a plentiful effusion of Norman blood, end quote. Which honestly sounds really cool, but probably sounds terrifying if you're one of the guys expected to carry this out or die trying. So the fellas were getting worried. Making matters worse, they didn't have any powerful friends to help them pull this off, or even shelter them. And now that Ely had fallen, they didn't even have a resistance base to flee to. This prison break plan had all the hallmarks of an Edwin special, in that, you know, it was destined to fail. And three of his closest companions, all of them brothers, realized exactly how dire their situation was. And so they began to make their own escape plan. Meanwhile, Harroward and his men were on the run. Literally. When they'd escaped from Ely, it had required more than a little stealth. And let's be honest, horses are not famous for their subtlety. So they had to leave them behind. And that was a difficult decision, especially for Harroward. For months, Harroward had been running a bandit operation targeting the Norman aristocracy. So he would have had his pick of horses. So this was a top-of-the-line, deluxe, limited-edition filly that he had. But war is hell. And they were traveling light. So sacrifices had to be made. But at the same time, Harroward didn't want some random lowlife to be able to brag that he'd stolen the rebel leader's ride. So before leaving Ely... 
Harroward killed his own horse. Now, this is a horrible story, but it's right there in the Gesta. And I'm not sure if this is just a record of what happened or if there's a deeper cultural meaning here that we've since forgotten. Maybe this was just the medieval version of fridging. I don't know. But whatever it was, the scribes of the Gesta thought it was important enough to include it, so I thought you might as well know about it. Either way, though, the newly pedestrian rebel leader was fleeing north and retreating farther from the Norman army that was now occupying and militarizing the Fens. And eventually, he reached the great forests of Northamptonshire. Now, a look at the Doomsday Book shows that there was a large king's forest in Northamptonshire, so that's probably where Harroward went. And somewhere in there, he established his camp, far from the watchful eyes of his enemies. But he wasn't here for rest and relaxation. For Harroward, the war wasn't over. The rebellion still had work to do. And luckily, it was work that they had gotten pretty good at. They also had an advantage. The enemy had seized and occupied estates all over the kingdom, which meant that they had an abundance of potential targets and they could pick and choose where they would strike, while the Normans would have to defend everywhere, and they would never know where the attacks would come from next. And so Harward and his men spent their time, quote, laying waste to the land with fire and sword, end quote. Harward was taking full advantage of the situation that he was in, and turning William's position against him. It's what a good leader does in circumstances like this. Bad leaders, on the other hand, well, they get caught up in personal matters, and they decide to pursue suicide missions regardless of whether or not they have any chance of success. Bad leaders ignore the concerns of their men, and they rely on their social positions to demand obedience. And I'm obviously talking about Edwin here. And by the winter of 1071, Edwin had about 20 guys who were still willing to follow him. And that isn't bad if you're recruiting for a kickball team, but it's appalling if you're trying to build an army to retake a kingdom. Now, Orderic, who absolutely loved Edwin, tells us, quote, the graces of his person were so striking that he might be distinguished among many thousands, end quote. But remember, Orderic never actually met the guy. And the people who had actually met Edwin, well, they don't seem to have been all that impressed. But like William, he was unwilling to back down and he was going to assault that castle and free his brother, regardless of how many people came with him. And that's how he ended up in camp next to a river, accompanied by barely enough guys for a game of ultimate Frisbee. However, fortune can change quickly and apparently word of his presence had spread because suddenly on the horizon headed directly for them was a fresh regiment of soldiers a lot of soldiers and leading them were some familiar faces it was edwin's trusted companions the three brothers who had been serving him faithfully all these months they must have had a change of heart when they left and found a way to gather recruits and these recruits were clearly ready and willing to fight. They already had their swords and spears drawn and were wearing Norman armor? Oh, f it's at about this time 
that it must have occurred to Edwin that camping on a narrow peninsula, which became even narrower during high tide, was probably a mistake because they were completely cut off. We're not told whose idea it was to camp there, but considering the tactical issues of the location and the fact the three brothers knew exactly where to find him, I have to wonder if the camping site was their idea in the first place. Either way, though, Edwin and his companions had no choice but to try and fight their way out. So they formed up, probably into a shield wall, and prepared to weather the joint Anglo-Norman advance. Orderick doesn't give us details of the battle that followed. And honestly, there probably wasn't much to write about. My guess is that it was a short affair, as Edwin and his companions were badly outnumbered and almost certainly outclassed. And in short order, they were all killed. But the brothers weren't done yet. They had helped the Normans, sure, but they'd also rebelled against William. And if the rumors about this guy were true... Well, he wouldn't be satisfied with just a little support. He'd want something more. So they cut off Edwin's head and began the long ride to the king's court. Meanwhile, out in Northampton Forest, Hereward and his crew were stacking bodies. And every time the local authorities started to close in on them, they moved. That's the advantage of living rough. If you're mostly just living in a tent, well, you could live anywhere. And so Hereward and his men kept to the wild places that stretched between Northampton and Peterborough, attacking when the opportunity presented itself and fleeing when danger arrived. And the local Norman authorities couldn't stop them. In fact, these attacks were becoming such a problem that it caught the attention of the king. And you have to imagine that the local Norman nobles did not want that to happen. I mean, would you really want someone like William thinking that you were bad at your job? So I'm guessing that this had been going on for quite some time. And by the time that word of it reached the king, well, he was clearly concerned or angry or both. Probably both because his response feels a little personal. He called up the soldiers of Northampton, Cambridge, Lincoln, Leicester, Huntington, Warwick, and Holland. Not the country, but the county, the one that was located in southeastern Lincolnshire. So this was a lot of men, especially from a freshly conquered kingdom dealing with broad starvation. And his plan for dealing with Hereward was simple. The Normans were going to go into the forest and clear it out. Just get in there, boys, and get me a rebel. So the order was sent out, and in they went. Meanwhile the three traitorous brothers arrived at William's court, carrying their grim trophy. And they presented it to the king as a token of their new loyalty. It was a bold move, but it had a really big flaw. I mean, on the one hand, William was bloodthirsty and ruthless when it came to anyone he viewed as disloyal. So the death of Edwin was definitely good news here. But on the other hand, these three had been Edwin's companions. So if William forgave them and welcomed them into court, how long would it be before his head was being carried by these guys as a trophy? And William was a Norman. He was already well aware of how quickly allies can turn into assassins. He'd spent his entire life dodging situations just like this. So when the brothers presented Edwin's head, the proverbial record scratch stopped the court cold. Now, I should point out that 
that Edwin was basically the main character of Orderick's account during this period. And Orderick has a very specific interpretation of this event. He tells us that Edwin's death was just a massive tragedy that was mourned by the entire kingdom. Not just the English, but even the Normans were heartbroken at the death of Edwin. Just absolutely grief-stricken, as if they lost a close family member or friend. And he writes that when King William heard of the assassination, he sobbed bitterly. So great was his love for Edwin. Outraged and horrified at the cruelty inflicted upon the young man who he cared for so much, William banished the three brothers from the kingdom and fell into mourning. And let's be honest here, that is just classic William. Just a weepy sweet lad with a soft spot for English aristocrats. Everybody says this about him. Yeah, no. I suspect that Orderick is massaging the details to fit his narrative of Edwin as the main character of a tragedy. However, I do suspect that William banished the brothers. It would honestly be weird if he didn't. Not only were they completely disloyal, but now even the English hated them, which made them useless to William. It wasn't like they were now going to be able to convince the English to chill out on his behalf. And if he was associated with them at all, the English would probably get even madder. So yeah, bye bye And given that we don't even know their names... I wouldn't be surprised if they met the dodgy end that meets most people who inconvenience William. But once that matter was put to bed, William set about his most important job, handling real estate. Edwin and Morcar held a lot of land, like a lot of land. And now Edwin was dead. And Morcar was in a Norman dungeon, which meant he was as good as dead. So now it was time to use their stuff to buy loyalty amongst William's own people. And Orderick tells us, quote, William distributed their vast domains in the richest districts of England, raising the lowest of his Norman followers to wealth and power, end quote. He then goes on to provide a lengthy list of famous names, like Walter de Lacy, Roger de Montgomery, and William de Warren. And he describes all kinds of estates being passed out like a hand of cards. Oh, and remember Hugh Lupus, that greedy and ruthless Earl of Chester? Well, better keep him happy. So a bunch of properties went to him as well. And Edwin and Morcar weren't the only nobles who had their lands seized recently. All the rebels of Ely, along with a bunch of folks who weren't in rebellion but just happened to be too closely connected to the rebels, had lands seized by William at around this point. So, you know, time to make those followers happy. In an instant, a ton of English lands and titles were in the hands of a very small number of nobles, who mostly saw England as a way to further enhance their power on the continent. And you can see how this would be bad, not just for the English, but also for William, right? The more you do this, the more you got the tiger by the tail. And actually, 1071, it wasn't done yet. Right as the Civil War debacles and the English Earl beheadings and the real estate transactions and the rebel forest ambushes were going on, something else was happening too. King William's personal biographer, the man tasked with showcasing how William was awesome and powerful and had a face that could terrify his enemies and bewitch his allies. Well, it looks like he quit. 
According to Orderic Vitalis, it's here in 1071 that William of Poitiers stopped recording his history and delivered his manuscript to the king. And apparently, Poitiers quit due to some sort of incident we're not told about. And I have to wonder if the event took place sometime between 1069 and 1071. Because Orderic tells us that Poitiers was actually still writing during those years. But mysteriously, the pages that he wrote about for that period were lost. And there were a lot of events that took place during those years that someone could take issue with. And personally, I wonder if a certain someone wasn't pleased with how his genocide was covered. And being unable to write a defense himself, he chose just to edit the chapter by ripping it out of the book with his big hammy bastard fingers. But whatever got to him, Poitiers was officially done with this mess. Thanks for everything, Poitiers. Your account provided much needed detail for this period and also some truly incredible cringe. Meanwhile, Harroward was still in the wilds, fighting his rebellion. And he was proving very difficult for William and his Normans to defeat. And the rebel army was still growing. According to the Gesta, despite the loss of Ely, he, quote, happened to have many men, both from that region and further afield, who came to him for military training and who, in order to be instructed in this, left their lords and friends and joined Harroward, having heard of the fame of his men, end quote. But for as many fighters as he had, King William had more. That army had been assembled from seven territories simply to attack Harroward and his band. The king had access to almost endless military power here. And so he'd drawn up a lot of these men and placed them under the command of Ivo Talibois. And this time, instead of bringing an eccentric lady friend, Ivo decided to bring Abbot Turald with him. And together, with their men, they were marching through the woods and hunting Harroward's rebels. But there was still hope for the wake. See, this Norman army was large. And it was loud. And it was largely trained for fighting in fields. While Harroward's army, well, they've been living in the wilds for quite some time now, and they were well-trained for exactly this sort of environment. They also knew that they were being hunted, so they stayed on the move, shifting from hiding place to hiding place, staying hidden and unseen, and camping in hard-to-access areas that they've come to know during their time here. They took advantage of local informants and local support. They used deception to mislead their foes. And in one story, we're told that Harroward had his army reshoe their horses so that their shoes were on backwards and thus would send any scout that came upon their trail in the wrong direction. He did everything he could, but eventually it became clear that he wouldn't be able to evade the Normans forever. The net was tightening and eventually they would be trapped. So while they were still able to move freely, he decided his best chance was to take a small contingent of hand-picked soldiers, flank the Normans, and attack them from the rear. And here, at their current camp, well, this was as defensible a location as they could hope for. So he decided they would make a stand here and wait for the enemy to come to them. In preparation, Harroward positioned all his archers and slingmen in the trees, 
ordering them to hold their positions silently in the branches directly above the Norman approach. And then he took a hundred of his best fighters and hid them in the brush. And they waited for the enemy to approach the camp. Eventually, they saw the forces of Ivo and Turald marching up the path. And it was clear they were unaware of the archers that watched from above and the fighters who watched from the brush. When the Normans reached the center of the trap, Hereward leapt from his hiding place and charged the enemy lines. Directly behind him was Reganwale, the steward of Ramsay, along with many other rebel heroes. And covered by a hail of arrows and stones from the trees above, Hereward and his men ran towards the shocked Normans. From another direction, a group of rebels on horses erupted from the bush. They were led by Winter, who was famed for his strength and among the first to join Hereward at Ely and they crashed through the enemy lines, hacking as they went. And then just as quickly, they withdrew to prepare for their next charge. As they pulled back, the archers once again began loosing volleys to protect their retreating comrades. Quote, again and again, all day long, advancing and retreating, attacking in great numbers, their friends continually covering them with missiles hurled from above and ensuring their safety in retreat, end quote. By the end of the day, it was clear the battle was at a standstill. Despite having superior numbers, the rebels' position and their defenses had rendered the Norman numbers moot. The knights and even their horses were getting exhausted from all the fighting. But this wasn't a victory for the rebels. They were still suffering losses, and by staging such daring charges, Hereward's men were at risk of being captured. And eventually, tragedy struck. Hereward's nephew, Seward the Blonde, along with an unknown number of other rebel fighters, were captured by the Normans. So now, if Hereward and the rebels continued their fight, they very well might sign the death warrant of his own kinsmen. Abbot Turold and Ivo Talibois knew that Hereward would have no choice now he would have to agree to terms for surrender. And so the Normans broke off the engagement, and they began to pull back. It made perfect sense. Honor and family loyalty would demand that Hereward come to the table. He had no choice. This was a cultural pressure that figures like Harold Godwinson had stuck to for generations. But Hereward wasn't Harold Godwinson. Hereward was his own thing. And he was the kind of guy who would stab a dude in the dick just to win a duel. He wasn't about any honor code. He was about winning. And these Normans had just dropped their guard. The rebels struck forward, hacking and slashing their way into the rear of the withdrawing Norman lines. And they had a specific target in mind. They were headed straight for the command unit the surprised and likely appalled command unit. And in a flash, the rebels got what they had come for and retreated back to their defensive lines, once again covered by archers and slings. And as for what they got? Well, they got Abbot Turl, as well as four other high-ranking figures. And now Hereward was ready to come to the negotiating table. And he had a few demands in mind. 
about 30,000 of them. Enough to replace his horse, and then some. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit. We've been talking a lot about what's been going on on the show over there, and I think you guys would enjoy it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>